Right on the money for Shifley. Wheeler. Backtracking was Donato. Oleksiak, a quick up. Morgan Geeky collects it. Out in front, they score! On his birthday! That's hockey, baby! John Hayden! Hey now, hey now, it is Steve Bennett, the Sportscasters Podcast, February 17th, 2023, episode number three of season 13, sounds like a lot of threes. On the show today, Alex Faust is the play-by-play man for the Los Angeles Kings. Uh, He also calls games for TNT. He's done college hockey. He's done basketball. He's done baseball. He's done a lot of different sports. A rising star in the business. We'll talk to to Alex after the break about replacing a legend. Uh, He was one of the many current Los Angeles sports play-by-play men who had to step in the booth after a legend. Joe Davis had to step in for Vince Scully. You know, Chick Hearn was replaced. And Bob Miller the longtime Los Angeles Kings announcer, four decades he did there, was replaced by our first guest, Alex Faust, makes his debut on the show today. Uh, also on the show today, a returnee, Al Strachan, was a, co- a NHL hockey writer for the Globe and Mail and many other places during his Hall of Fame career, in the Hall of Fame as a sports writer. Uh, Al was the guy that Wayne Gretzky trusted similar to the way Michael Jordan trusted Ahmad Rashad. He was Gretzky's guy. He got the scoops from Gretzky. He's got great Gretzky stories. Uh, He's retired now. He lives in Florida. He did do a book a couple years ago uh, about the hockey night in Canada in between periods, and he was on promoting that. I really liked him, and we had scheduled for him to come back because I wanted him to tell some more Gretzky stories. And the day that we were supposed to record was my first day in the hospital last year. So January 28th, 2021, I guess, 22, 2022. And when we talked after the fact, he's like, I was checking my email all day, wondering if I misunderstood or missed your call or whatever. I think, unfortunately, I didn't email him for a couple of days to apologize and say, listen, I ended up taking an ambulance to the hospital and, you know, bad Bad timing, and we never did reschedule it till now, and uh, it's a really great conversation. I, I say this lovingly. I think he may have the biggest ego of anyone who I've ever had on the show, but it comes off as endearing. There's something endearing about him, and I know some people think he's a, a grouchy old man. <clears throat> Excuse me. A grouchy old man. He's retired down in Florida, and sometimes his Twitter will come off as, get off my lawn, guy, and that's fine. And sometimes I agree with him a lot. I agree with him a lot more than I don't. But either way, we focus on Gretzky. It's just stories about Wayne Gretzky and hockey, and it's awesome. Really great interview. I think you'll like it. All right, a few things before we get going. The Super Bowl the other night, uh, Sunday. Good game, and unfortunately, a penalty that you know they call all the time. I don't have any problem with the call. Seemed like the right call. Uh, was made. They let it go sometimes. They didn't there. And I think it's the biggest mistake with the Eagles coaches. They have to let the player know there. The only thing we can't have happen is a penalty. 
or a first down. If you get beat for a touchdown, get beat for a touchdown. Uh, but don't give them a first down because we lose the game, and that's what happened. You know what it made me think of, though? Because there was a huge outcry about it because it's the Super Bowl and everyone's watching. I bet a lot less people would be telling me to get over it if the Saints no-call against the Rams happened in a Super Bowl. Because you have all those people who are invested in the game because of bets and things like that. If that would have happened during the Super Bowl, people would understand why I'm still mad to this day. Um, I'm glad it didn't. Glad it only happened in the championship game because it'd be even worse to have a championship rip away from you, let alone a chance to be in the championship. Uh, but I don't think the Eagles got screwed or anything like that. I think that was a penalty. Uh, it's one of those that in football they don't call every time because if they did, they'd probably never have a play. It's be holding penalties, maybe like offensive holding. But he grabbed his jersey, probably cost the other team a touchdown. So I think it's one you should call. I, I wouldn't have lost my mind if they didn't call it. As a neutral, I wish they didn't. Uh, but they did. And uh, what are you going to do? Good game. Congrats to the Mahomes and the Chiefs who are going to be in the mix for the next decade. So, hey, let's see how many they can get. They're going to be a, an ongoing problem, as they say. The worst call in sports this week wasn't that, though. It was in Europe yesterday. Juventus is in something called Europa League, which is a step down from Champions League because they got eliminated from that. And uh, they played a team from France. I don't even remember the team they're playing. And in the 95th minute, the France team, Nens, Nines, I don't know, whoever they are, they had a handball in the box that actually stopped the ball from going in the net. And upon review, VAR called the referee over, said, you got to look at this. You made a clear and obvious error. And the referee looked at it, and somehow it still wasn't a penalty. And instead of potentially winning the game in the 96th minute, Juventus settled for a tie. And now that will go to the second leg, which is in France. So a huge disadvantage to Juventus. And the worst call in sports this week, way worse than the... Uh, than some of the others. the Manchester United and Barcelona played in Europa League yesterday, and it had the most views of any soccer game for the week, and that included Champions League, PSG, and Bayern. One thing about that PSG-Bayern game, uh, Donnarumma got blamed for the goal, and somehow at PSG, it's always Donnarumma's fault, uh, which is absurd, but he was amazing after the goal. And the goal was, I mean, the guy kick was a free guy kicking the ball inside the box about 10 yards away from him. I didn't think it was as bad as everyone else did. I guess I'm biased. Fine. Uh, but wow, was he amazing after the goal to keep a minute. And there's just too many offsides. Football, you can never cheer for a play because you're always waiting for a flag or a review. You can't celebrate a touchdown anymore. You don't know if he survived the ground. Where's feet in? Did he catch it? What's a catch? It You can't. Challenge. You can't celebrate a stop on third down because you're waiting for the flag to fly in for holding or interference or whatever. Soccer is just as bad. You can't cheer a goal anymore because VAR is around to take away goals. VAR should exist to replace clear and obvious mistakes and to create goals like the penalty would have yesterday. Instead, VAR exists to take away goals for offsides by whiskers. And it's even worse now in Italy where they have this new system, this grid thing, and it takes them away for kneecaps, you know, uh, blade of a shoulder, just the the ridiculous margin. They really need to fix the rule 
Uh, it's really ruining soccer. I was thinking about this the other day. Would I just say, okay, take away all review? It's more trouble than it's worth. And as much as I want to say yes, I can't because I just know how bad they are. They're so bad that they make so many mistakes. The game's so fast. The rules are so complicated. You have to have it because even if you say, but Steve, there's so many things they can't review anyway, and they're human and all that, it's fine. But, I mean, they gave the Jets a playoff spot over the Seahawks or vice versa the one year, you know, and Vinny Testaverde missed Yenzo by half a yard. So you need it there to correct those things. You know, I get disappointed sometimes when we're correcting touchdowns. You know, his elbow hits at the inch line. It gets a little technical, but these huge obvious errors, they, they're they just, I can't live with them, so I have to live with replay. Although in soccer, if they want to have it, they need to fix offsides. Uh, let me think. Anything else? I don't think so. We're going to do a book club update today. I've been working really hard on the book club, trying to build it up. We have two books, two more to talk about, and a bunch that I'm out and about working and trying. Uh, the book club is always going to be one of the most important things when it comes to this show uh, because so many guests who would have never been on before were because of the book club, and I've mentioned that. Don't forget the 24-inch podcast. Check it out if you can. Hollywood Dave Rollins, Paula, and I talk about the career of Hulk Hogan. It's right on this feed. If you found this podcast, you found the 24-inch podcast, give it a try if you haven't already. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Alex Faust. Our first guest is from Brooklyn, New York. He's a graduate of Northeastern. He has called games for NBC Sports, Nesson, ESPN, Westwood One. He's called college hockey, college football, college basketball, Major League Baseball for Fox Sports. And in 2017, he replaced a legend named Bob Miller to become the play-by-play man for the Los Angeles Kings. He's making his debut on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Alex Faust. Hey, Alex, what's going on, man? How you doing? Uh, I am doing well on this fine, uh, sunshiny day in Los Angeles. So first things first, Devin Levi steals the show last night. And for the first <laughs> time, for the first time, Harvard and Northeastern, how the hell did they go 70 years without? It, it is a question for modern science to, right? to, to ponder of the statistical uh, oddity that is uh, Harvard and Northeastern not uh, not facing each other in the final. But hey, Sabres prospect uh, Devin Levi, yeah. um, you know, who might be up uh, with the big club, uh, depending on how long Northeastern season goes. Um, no, he, he's been terrific. And, uh, you know, I'm, as uh, as many people who know me uh, know, I'm, I'm a proud uh, devoted, some would say, irrationally addicted uh, Northeastern fan. Um, you know, I, I'm so proud of my alma mater, and uh, it's been a lot of fun the last couple of years following the team. Was Clay Witt the goalie when you were there? Yes, Clay yeah. Witt. Oh, man, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, my- he was at one of our house parties once, and uh, he was very confused as to what the heck he was doing hanging out with a bunch of the radio guys. <laughs> <laughs> my brother played at Sioux Falls with him. And um, uh, okay, yeah, and then he went to a, he 
Witt was like trying to bring the whole the whole team, I think, to Northeastern. He was like the official, probably. You know, the official. Uh, I think the coaches told him like, "Who else is good on the team? <laughs> bring him with you." <laughs> and uh, at the time, we could take whoever we could get. Right, and my brother ended up at Yale and won the national championship there in 2013. Wow. But um, last night he was at the Bean Pot because he's been coaching and working with the Hudson brothers, Lane and okay. Quinn, but mostly with Cole, who's actually at the development program last night. But, you know, uh, right now, what I wanted to do was, I was thinking about this, is like I wanted to look and see how many times either BC or BU had lost the first game and the other team needed to hold serve to make it hmm. happen. You know what I mean? I was curious about that. Like, yeah. How many yeah. times did they need to win to force it? But the Bean Pot's awesome. And it one is. of the great hockey events that just doesn't get enough coverage. I know they are showing it on what TSN two, I think, in Canada now. And, yeah, uh, NHL Network will have it next Monday. They had the AHL All Star Game uh, on a Monday this year, which which was weird in its own right. Um, right, but that's why they didn't have it uh, last night. So we had to we had to go through some uh, some uh, uh, alternative uh, avenues to try to watch, <laughs> but we uh, we managed to make it work. And uh, we had a couple of folks over at, at my house yesterday, and we had a little watch party. So that was a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah, I I, I have Nesson on DirecTV, so I was still able to watch it. There you go. Um, good stuff. How important to you when you look back was, I think by your junior year, you were the head play-by-play guy at Northeastern. What about kind of developing your skills and how important college hockey is to you, just like maybe it was to Alex Iafalo, you know, or someone yeah. on the Kings who, who went that route as well? You know, I think from the standpoint of developing as a broadcaster, when you're at a bigger program, if you have – uh, you know, access to, you know, the tools and the alumni network. You know, I'm thinking about Syracuse, Indiana, Arizona State, sure. Hofstra, you know, all the big hitters in broadcasting. Yeah, Vanderbilt. Yeah, you have a support system and, you know, networking opportunities built in. We, we don't really have that as much at Northeastern, although it's growing. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, by being an ambassador of sorts, uh, you know, I can help grow that. But, uh, you know, I think being part of that community was so helpful for my development as a professional, uh, my understanding of, you know, how things work in the world of sports, you know, college or pro, being in a town like Boston was great for that. But I had, uh, you know, I was meeting um, with one of the uh, PR guys in the NHL who went to a Beanpot school and uh, we got to talking about, you know, how special it is to have something that so many people gravitate back to, whether it's the bean pot or the end of the season, the Hockey East tournament, or just knowing other people from New England college hockey. Uh, or maybe, you know, if you're from, you know, one of the Western schools, it, it applies too. But I'm just thinking strictly from my experience in New England and in Boston and that tight knit community. Uh, there's nothing quite like it. And everybody who comes back to it, I think about a lot of the people who work the bean pot from a support role, either, uh, you know, helping with media or helping with television. It's, it's a passion project for everybody. Everybody loves it. Everybody loves what they're doing. They're not in it to make money. They, they enjoy the tradition. They enjoy the passion. They enjoy that, you know, specific to the bean pot. This is a reunion. This is like a homecoming. And uh, there's nothing quite like it in sports, I don't think, at least not that I've experienced, uh, to have something that, you know, unites uh, so many people 
in a region um, with a tradition that only they can call their own. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, sort of like maybe the Minnesota high school hockey tournaments yeah. or the like Cornell and Harvard would play once a year at the Garden. It's one of those things where you don't need to know really what's going. It's just the bean pot, right? Like, oh, it's the bean right. pot. Okay. Or like the yeah. Army Navy game, maybe in football. Yeah. It's like you don't need to know who's on those teams. It's just like, oh, those that's happening. Oh, I'll watch that, you know, or I'll go to that. Or like you said, you know, for people who went to the schools, like it's at the Garden. It's the second. Monday or whatever, first two Mondays of February every year. You know when it is. You know where it is, yep. and you just go to it. And if you know, you yeah, know. Yeah, it, exactly. It's, it's as simple as yeah. that. And the more the people that know about it, the more people tend to enjoy it. As a, a hockey broadcaster, you kind of, like I said, have the – you look back at your resume, and it kind of looks like a player who went to college. You know, you, you, you call games at college, and then after college you went to the minor leagues, and you call games in Utica – for you to comments so and then you move up to the NHL. So it feel kind of interesting to have that kind of development plan that's sort of similar if you look at it on a resume to that of a player. And a lot of the a players are, are your age too. You're not like I was watching something you did with the, the Kings and you were talking about how you're a little intimidated by Drew Doughty at first and you remembered like, hey, he's like my age, you know, I just talked to him like <laughs> anyone my age or whatever. Yeah. I, I think uh, you know what what was interesting about how I wound up in the NHL the TV experience I got, it was a means to an end. I drifted away from hockey in a lot of respects to get the requisite experience to put myself in a position to get considered for an NHL TV job. I think if I were to have just been in minor league hockey and didn't have experience doing college basketball on TV or college football on TV, um, you know, without those reps, I don't think I would have been as well equipped to jump straight into a TV role in the NHL. It probably would have been, you know, it, it, my job prospects probably would have been looking at radio roles. Um, so in that sense, I I was wanted to be in hockey, but I didn't quite know what the right way to get there was. And you know, even though I call, call games in the AHL, I wouldn't consider myself a full-timer. I was very fortunate to have an opportunity to tag team with Brendan Burke, uh, now the voice of the New York Islanders. Right. Um, and I would fill in for him and, you know, it worked out well for both of us. You know, Brendan got opportunities to, uh, you know, get more visible roles uh, in his burgeoning TV career, which set him up to get the Islanders job. And it allowed me to, you know, be able to dabble in hockey, um, you know, and, and get exposure in the pro game, uh, you know, in addition to my college hockey work in Nesson, and then translate that into uh, a reel that would be, you know, you know, I guess good enough for consideration uh, at the next level. I was, like I said, I was watching this thing that the Kings put out about kind of hiring you and you, your kind of role there and developing in. And you were talking about you never thought you'd be in the NHL at 28. And I was kind of thinking about that. And I was wondering if you thought about uh, this is what I kind of thought of. I don't know if you thought of this or not, but when you look at your credits and you have so many at a younger age, like you said, calling all the different sports, college football, college basketball baseball, Fox sports. I just wonder is streaming and things like ESPN plus and you know, when my brother was in the USHL in college, we would pay to watch his games and Emmer's was like the beginning of that era. There seems like there's so many more games broadcast than like, say when I was growing up, we got the game of the week. I mean, I'm not, I'm older than you, not that much older, 10 years <laughs> or so, but like, you know, but it seems like that yeah. As you've gotten to the point where you needed to develop, there was maybe more games to call than maybe if you were developing earlier 
by a decade or so. And it seems like maybe that we're going to get more younger announcers developing this way. I feel like announcers are getting younger. When I was older, when I was younger, all the announcers were very old. Seems like everyone's getting younger, and I wonder if it's because of the volume that exists now, and if that's helping spur the development as people move up to the higher jobs. It's a good point, and I do think there is a direct connection between having more opportunities to to work uh, and you know seeing folks grow because of those opportunities. When you're not, as you would know, in this business. When you're not getting reps, it's not like other lines of work or even if, let's say, you were an athlete and you could practice and, you know, you could have a skating coach or a shooting coach. Uh, you know, in, in baseball, you could you could take ground balls. You can't do that in this business. There's no way to get better without doing it and doing it live. Right. So having those reps, I think, does make a difference for younger broadcasters at the same time. You know, this proliferation of streaming and smaller schools streaming uh, has come at the expense of commercial radio in a lot of places, which you know would provide steady jobs and you know well-paying jobs at these lower levels that just no longer exist because well we're putting our games online and it doesn't cost that much to produce and we know not that many people are you know, uh, listening on a regular basis. Cause you know, now we have devices everywhere. We, we don't funnel everybody to radio sure. like we used to. So, you know, the, the money at the lower levels, um, isn't what it used to be. And, you know, it's again, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Cause you know, I know of people who have taken, you know, heavy volumes of work, uh, at the division one level, kind of filling in on whatever sport they could get, or Division Two and whatnot, and you know, just filling up your calendar with freelance opportunities, and you make something out of that. Whereas in years past, maybe you were hired by one school to be the voice for every sport there, and it just doesn't work that way, uh, at least at smaller schools anymore. And then you have, you know, the the changing landscape with uh, ESPN and how things used to be funneled down to regional producers. So when I started there. Uh, ESPN regional television had just evolved out of uh, the old ESPN plus, which were games produced and then sold or distributed to regional sports networks or local TV stations. Right. So, you know, SEC games and ACC games, big 10, big East, you know, the, there was an old big East network, right? Cause th they distributed it to, uh, you know, the regional sports networks where they were, uh, you know, where the teams would be in the same region that, that doesn't exist anymore. It's either all linear or all digital. And a lot of these schools that, you know, would, you know, maybe get a game or two from a full on television production. It's now on SEC Network Plus on digital or ACC Network Extra on digital. And I was coming in right at the end of, of full ESPN production on these games that would air on a regional basis or online only on ESPN 3 at the time. So there is a little bit of a give and take there. I, I've, had I've had conversations with a couple of younger broadcasters who are looking for advice or looking for, you know, how did you break in and, you know, what was your story? And the path has closed off a little bit because at these schools, there used to be a direct connection to say, oh, yeah, the guy at ESPN hired you to do this game on site at this particular time, whereas now – if you're doing work for, let's say, a school in the American conference, um, you know, that has their own digital network, 
or the Big 12 or a lot of schools in the SEC, it's a lot of internal folks who are staffed by the schools as opposed to by ESPN. And so the latter doesn't exist in the same way that it used to. And you, and you have to find other ways to um, you know, carve out a name for yourself or stand out. So the, the long-winded way to answer your question, but uh, I do think there are more opportunities than ever before to get reps, but the pathway to uh, climbing the ladder with those reps has definitely changed. Sounds like a lot more 1099s. You know what I mean? And Correct. Like, yes. <laughs> a lot more independent contractors as opposed to, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. You know, there's this saying in coaching, and I guess it's probably the same in broadcasting too, is that you never want to be the guy after the guy. You want to be the guy after the guy that was after the guy, right? If that means, if I had said that mm-hmm. right. And uh, we're living it in Buffalo this year, fresh, as Rick Jenneratt retired last year. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Dunleavy is full-time here now and he's been part of the broadcast for a few years because Jenneratt didn't just go from being the guy to not being the guy he kind of phased himself Mm -hmm. out over time but nobody is more equipped to answer what it's like to be the guy after the guy than you and you're a few years away from it now how do you think overall it's been to be the guy after the guy with the amazing career decades long that Bob Miller had and and you I don't even want to say the word replacing because you know you don't do that but following him into the booth in LA. Yeah, it was, uh, I think in hindsight, more intimidating than I gave it credit for. I walked into this job, you know, wanted to, to pay respect to how it had been done for many years, but at the same time recognize that, Hey, I was hired for me. I was hired for my skill set and my approach and my personality. And I didn't want to, you know, defer. And I, I think, you know, the first few years, I didn't want to admit it, but there was a lot of pressure and uh, I felt it. And it wasn't uh, until, you know, the last couple where I really felt, you know, more comfortable in my own skin here in L.A. Um, to to truly be myself. And, uh, you know, it, I, I, I think there's no easy way to to explain, you know, the the, the challenges that come with, you know, taking over a job that had been held by somebody for a long, long time. And not only just by anybody, but somebody who's in the Hall of Fame and was considered one of the best ever to do it. So, you know, being unique while respecting that the marketplace has expectations of what either you should sound like or how a broadcast had been constructed for many years I think there was an adjustment period from, from both parties. There, You know, I've heard from fans who say, yeah, you know, when you first came in, um, you know, I, I didn't know what to think, but you're like, you've really grown on me and, and vice versa. I came in thinking, well, you know, I have to do it my way and I have to do it at, like the, you know, because I don't want to, uh, you know, defer and, you know, uh, sound like it was done before. And then I recognize, you know what, they, there was, there were actually some merits to, some of the nuances for how things used to be done here. And it's been a really, um, you know, I think it's been a really good couple of years where, um, you know, I, I feel comfortable with the audience. The audience feels comfortable with me. And it, it, it's not an overnight process. So, you know, Joe Davis, when I first moved out here, had a similar um, right. feeling. And, uh, you know, the advantage that, that Joe had was he had started uh, while Vin Scully was scaling back his workload uh, before Vin ultimately retired. And so he, he had a chance to get his feet wet and get to know everybody before becoming the guy. And I had to jump in with both feet. Um, so I, I think 
I've learned a lot. Um, you know, you, everybody who you've interviewed, I'm sure has told you, you never stop learning. And I completely agree with that sentiment, but, uh, you know, year number six now in Los Angeles, uh, I feel a lot more comfortable in my own skin than I did in year one. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, if you're going to be the singer in Guns N' Roses after Guns N' Roses, the only thing you got to make <laughs> sure you, you don't, if you're going to go, if you're going to file Axl Rose, you, you, you can't try to sing like them. It's so unique, right? Right. I think right. the only way you have a chance is if you're just really good and people just like you because you're really good. And I think that, I think you've had success because you're really good at it, right? And I think if you tried to do an imitation or something, people just see through that mm -hmm. right away, I think. Yep, yep. Yeah. And that's that's where uh, I think, you know, being able to walk in and have the confidence in any line of work, uh, but especially in broadcasting where uh, it really does translate. If, if you're not uh, in command of, uh, you know, the live action, uh, you know, it, it people will find you out. And uh, it's one thing that, uh, you know, I think is probably the hardest thing to teach or to learn in this industry is uh, how to have that confidence and project it when even, you know, in, in some moments you may not be feeling it. That's just part of the performance nature of the industry. I was watching another video and Luke Robitaille was talking about hiring you and he seemed like that to be really attracted to the fact that you were a younger guy and sort of almost he made me feel like he was looking for someone that might want to be the next guy that had this job for a long time. Maybe it's similar to the way the Steelers hire a coach, right? Because they've only had a few. And it's like I think when they look to hire a guy, they I think in their mind they're saying, okay, mm -hmm. could this guy work here 30 years? You know, like they all seem to. Uh, sure. And it seems like that was something Robitaille really liked about you. Is this a job you want to do for 30, 40 years? You look ahead. I mean, we never look that far ahead in our lives, right? But whatever the distance is, you look apart when you're setting goals. Where am I going to be in 5, 10, whatever? Is this the job you feel like you want to have? Is this where you want to be for a long time? I can't lie to you and say, you know, I will – you know, close off every opportunity that comes my way because, uh, you know, because right. the Kings are the only job I ever wanted. No, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, I was given a, a tremendous opportunity by this franchise to be the longtime voice of the team. And I recognize that that's the expectation. And, uh, you know, I fully intend, um, you know, to, to have that be a part of my, uh, my job here, you know, is to, to, to start something and start a foundation now that can continue for, for years to come at the same time, you know, I, I think part of what this industry forces you to do is you cannot close doors and you never know what doors might open. So, you know, I, I at the same time, I can't, you know, say, well, you know, I'm not going to bolt for the next available opportunity. No, like, you know, this is a, this has become a home for me. And, uh, you know, I've met incredible people here and had an incredible experience um, being in Los Angeles, uh, you know, being in such a vibrant market for sports, um, you know, there, but you can't close off anything. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been so fortunate in my career to be able to work for a couple of different networks and call different sports and grab on to, to opportunities that come my way. And, uh, you know, I, I hate saying no. <laughs> so, 
Um, it's a, it's a terrible answer to give, but, uh, you know, cause it makes it's a sense. little bit, uh, makes sense. but you know, it, but that's, that's the nature of the business, right? Yeah. And you know, when I was growing up as a hockey fan and watching national games, it was Gary Thorne, right? He's the one who called the Gretzky breaking the record or mm-hmm. the one who called mm-hmm. Steve Eiserman's double overtime goal in game seven against the blues. And then for another generation, it was doc, right. And him right. calling the, the Kings are the Kings. One of the best calls of the last 20 years, mm-hmm. I think. And then. Right now we have McDonough and, and Albert, and I'm a huge Kenny Albert guy and a huge Summit kind of guy. I love both those guys; been really good to me. Um, is the idea of maybe being the national voice of hockey? I know you've done some TNT stuff. You did the All Star Game for Westwood One. You've done some stuff on more of a national level. Is that something that interests you? Of being a guy who calls a lot of national games, maybe not tied to a team, um, but more um, the sport itself or other sports, and being more of a national voice. I mean, if I could thread the needle and be able to get the best of both worlds, right. I would love that. You right. know, I, I love uh, I love doing games uh, on a national stage. I mean, it's such a you know more so than you know the the achievement of being able to do something at a national level. It's it's a validation that um, you know your work is uh, enjoyed beyond the market that you're in, and that that to me is such a uh, you know, a cool thing to be able to, to have, um, you know, the opportunity to, to speak for, you know, the entire hockey community, right? You know, if I'm doing a game on national television, um, it's because I'm entrusted to know the league at large, not just the team. At the same time, it is such a, such a cool emotional ride to be part of a team and, you know, be part of those highs and lows. And I've, it's funny in six years, I've seen a little bit of everything. I, you know, I've seen us go to the playoffs and get swept. I've seen us in a rebuild. I've seen us, you know, go all the way uh, to game seven in a playoff series. Haven't seen us one uh, a playoff series just yet, but I feel like I've gotten a taste of a little bit of everything in six years with a team. And there's no replicating that there, there truly is no replicating the emotional connection you forge with an organization and the people who work for it and the players themselves. I mean, you really do become uh, a family, uh, even though I think these days players uh, are kind of kept separate from team media. There, there is a bond that you form when you go on a deep run like that. Uh, and uh, I can only hope that I can be part of one here uh, in Los Angeles uh, with the way things are shaping up right now. It's an interesting team, right? Because they did have that, period where they're higher in the draft but those players really haven't been the ones like con- contributing necessarily to the rise of the team they're tied with the kraken for first place in the division the knights are sort of fading i blame jack eichel but i'm from buffalo <laughs> um, <laughs> of course <laughs> right so what what about the team this year quickly what do you see when you when you look out and it's just a, it's a weird it's a weird team for me to get a handle on because it, it's built a little different and wins a little bit different than I might expect it to. And there's still names on the team that sure. remind you of the, the cups and things like that. There's still guys there, but you know, Jonathan quick's still one of the goalies and Dowdy's still one of the defensemen, but then there's also new names and new players. What, what do you think of the team this year and kind of how they they're together and, and what you think their ceiling is? You know, I think there's a strange orthodoxy among fans and, you know, it might come off as sacrilege to say, but, you know, you can't fall in love with a player just because you drafted them. Um, and I think that the Kings are showing, hey, we're all about building a roster. It doesn't matter how you get from point A to point B. 
um, because not every draft pick you get is going to pan out. Most of them will never make the NHL. And so, you know, when, when you're looking at roster construction and say, well, you know, so the, the prospects haven't come in just yet. And so, you know, the, the Kings have gone outside the organization. I'm like, well, isn't the goal to win the Stanley Cup and, and build the best possible team you can? So, yeah, Victor Arvidsson and, and Philip Deneau and Trevor Moore and Kevin Fiala. Like, none of these guys were drafted by the Kings. Um, so, it, it, to me, all that matters is at the end of the day, are you building a team that, um, you know, isn't just for one year, right? You know, some teams go all in just for one year. And I think Minnesota um, is proving everybody wrong this year by, uh, you know, even though they are in salary cap hell right now, uh, they still want to go for it and win. So even that, um, you know, particular orthodoxy is being challenged. So I, I look at the Kings and say, this team, they are trying to build it to win, whether it's win this year or win next year. The window that they're in, um, they're at the start of it. And regardless of who's around, because the trade deadline is around the corner, and I don't know if uh, our entire team is going to be intact at the trade deadline. Maybe we're going to add somebody. Uh, I would, In fact, I would say it's more likely than not that we're going to add somebody in L.A. Things change. You know, people get traded all the time. Um, And I I would just say, you know, enjoy uh, being in a position where you can add and load up and compete because uh, I think uh, this team, I don't think they're ready to win a Stanley Cup. Uh, I still think they need to you know, change a couple of things with the roster. I think the front office would admit as such. But they are ready to be a, a perennial playoff team. And as you know, all it, all that matters in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and especially Kings fans will tell you, all that matters is just get in. Be in the tournament, especially in the West. I mean, the West is as wide yep. open For sure. as it's been. And I think it's a product of the market too, right? I mean, if you're going to be an entertainment franchise and sports are all about entertainment in LA. You, you got to win, right? I mean, the Sabres will always be the Sabres here in Buffalo, right? We have them in the mm-hmm. bills. That's what the, the market. It's been a miserable 10 years. Don't get me wrong. And it's hurt the team, but, but I think in Buffalo there, there to, to that point, there is a more of a uh, emotional bond that's forming with that group. Oh yeah. And the fans Very much. and, yep. and, and playing for the fans, not to say they don't here in LA, but, but you're right, there is a little bit of a different um, connection there than here in L.A. All that matters is just win. Just like, win, you know, yeah. Ultimately, it don't yep. really matter how you do it. Just win. You know? Yeah, if you want people in Staples, just be winning, and people yeah. will be there. And, I mean, if the Kings ever went through a decade like the Sabres did, I can't imagine how buried they'd be in that city. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you have It's to be- a little bit – you know what? You say that, but it, I, having seen it when they were in a rebuild – now, granted, it wasn't that long of one. LA is such a big market. It just you have so That's many people yep. to draw upon mm-hmm. that to put, you know, even if you're not selling out the building, let's say 15 to 17,000 people in the building. I'm not going to say it's easy to do because, you know, you still have to, you know, market the team, you still have to provide a, a great game day experience, you still have to put a competitive product on the ice. But, you know, for the 2 years where the Kings were a doormat in this rebuild, the building was never what I would call empty by any stretch. Um, you know, it, it was pretty well attended, and their season ticket base did not drop off all that much. There was a really loyal following. You know, LA is not a big hockey market, and I think if anybody tries to tell you differently, like that, they're lying. Like it's not a huge hockey market. We all know that, but the following that is here for the Kings is incredibly loyal and devoted. 
I always I always mock the Hurricanes a little bit and say they have such a huge advantage because when their building sold out, they literally have every single one of their fans at the game. You know, and, and LA- <laughs> that's that's a little unfair. <laughs> well, look at they beat us in a game seven. I'm a Buffalo guy, you know. Sure. Remember, yeah. So I make fun of the Hurricanes fans and Jack Eichel. I hate, um, <laughs> but uh, the Kings isn't exactly like that. But again, like you said, it's it's uh, it's the team's been there a long time. There's definitely long time fans, but again, be good. I think is important for them. Uh, the sports guests are here with Alex Faust finishing up a couple more real quick ones for you. I should know this. Are you guys back on the road um, for road games? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we've been on the road the whole year. Uh, we've been, you know, I'll give a lot of credit to the organization and to Bally Sports. They've made it a priority to have their talent on the road. Our pre and post game shows are in the studio and it was it's actually in some ways cheaper to produce them on the road because you're doing everything out of one truck as opposed to um, you know, having a control room and the, you know, a game, uh, production. So I'll give them credit for investing and, you know, well, well aware of the financial, uh, challenges that, uh, Bally's is, is undergoing, but you know, the demand for local sports is not ebbing. And I think the, you know, the bottom line is you're looking at it, um, you know, the, people are going to want to watch their teams and teams are going to need their games aired. And so something has to come from all of that uh, and we'll see what happens in the next couple months but yeah we've been on the road the whole year good good the, i was again doing some research and i it was interesting to find out that alex trebek mentioned you as someone who maybe should be the one to take that job but did you did you actually do auditions was that ever a serious thing or is this like a hockey guy out in la loved hockey loved your voice man i know he's i read somewhere he meant that he mentioned you to the producers um, did you ever have any, I should probably know this too, but, um, what, what, was there anything of that more than just a line on a, in an article no, I read? No, there really wasn't, you know, yeah. I, I never had a chance to meet Alex and, um, you know, as far as I am aware, nothing was, uh, you know, put on the table from the producers and, you know, as you know, they went through, uh, bit of a scandal on their yeah, own with, that was uh, weird in general yeah. you know but uh, so yeah i never had any contact with with sony productions and uh you know it was obviously flattering to hear how good um you know how how, how big a hockey fan uh, uh, alex was and uh you know how much he liked uh, our work uh but yeah no i i never uh, never got in touch uh beyond uh, you know seeing the uh, <laughs> all the uh, the mentions uh you know in in the TMZ and whatnot which was very much uh, you know you want to talk about a welcome to LA moment it happened <laughs> only a couple years after i arrived but yeah that's a welcome to LA moment i was going to say like is that one of those days where you just you're whatever you're having dinner like at the Santa Monica Pier or something and you look down on your phone you have suddenly have like 65 text messages and everyone's yeah. like, oh, my God, Alex oh my Trebek God. mentioned you in a Variety article or whatever it was. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, yeah. It was very similar to that. <laughs> wild. Wild. Uh, the sports guest again here with Alex Faust. You can listen to him if you – I mean, I've heard a bunch of games this year uh, that you've done because the games are on ESPN Plus, and sometimes it's your broadcast or sometimes it's someone else. or um, And, of course, other sports that you do. Like I said, you did the uh, – all-Star Game for Westwood 1 on the radio. You've done a lot of different events. I'm, I've been assuming kind of the whole time that hockey is your number one. Maybe I'm wrong about that. What like Is there another sport you like to call more? Do you have a, If it is number one, do you have a second favorite? 
Like I talk to Kenny all the time. He's a guy who does all four pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. And I think for him, hockey is number one. But of course, there's the glamour of football, right? And he's called some amazing football games. Uh, playoff, uh, the Saints and 49ers. You remember the playoff game? They had kind of mm-hmm. called that. And McDonough, too, a lot of different sports. What about you with all the different sports? Are you a hockey guy, number one? I guess I've assumed that probably unfairly. But where, where do you stand with all the sports and where you rank them and what you like to call and what you like to do in terms of those different uh, things? Well, hockey is my favorite. I don't think I'm uh, you know, speaking out yeah, of turn by, by yeah. saying that. No, I, and I, I that's part of the reason why it, it's been so great to, to be with a team and be able to you know call you know 80-plus games a year um, as a result of, uh, you know, being with an organization, uh, as opposed to just a national network where you're dabbling in here or there, but at the same time, you know, I, I love baseball. I always have, uh, that was the sport I grew up playing. So, you know, I always enjoyed calling baseball. I've enjoyed the challenge of uh, calling football because it was not a sport that I grew up with. And, uh, you know, growing up in, uh, New York city, I didn't really uh, get exposed to it uh, as a kid. Um, you know, it was just a TV sport more than anything else. And, uh, you know, college basketball, as, as I mentioned earlier, that was a means to an end. It was a way to, to get a lot of volume in terms of reps on TV. And that has been such a great uh, thing to dip back into. And I, I love going to gyms that have terrific atmospheres. We just did a game um, over at UCLA at Poly Pavilion. And what a joy it is to be able to call a game from there. You know, I've, I've been so fortunate to, to call games from the Palestra. I've done UConn. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did Houston with Kelvin Sampson before that team was a top five juggernaut. I mean, I, I got to see the, the <laughs> foundation being laid from that group. Um, you know, I, so it, I've been so fortunate to be able to, to do you know, a lot of fun, fun games, college basketball, and meet some tremendous people. But yeah, hockey is, um, you know, it's where I want to be. It's where, uh, you know, I, I feel like there's so much comfort in, uh, you know, the, the way that people run this sport. Um, there, there's so many good people in, in professional hockey, and uh, there's nowhere else that, that I'd rather be on a full-time basis. You could find Alex at Alex underscore F-A-U-S-T on Twitter. Kings Broadcast, Fox Sports, filling in sometimes TNT as well. Anything else you want to plug or mention before I let you go? No, I don't. I don't have a book to plug. I don't have a. I don't have anything. Any big projects coming up? Do you have any uh, questions so, uh, for me? Well, you know, hey, who is uh, you know? I would say from a hockey interview perspective, uh, right. who's the coolest interview you've been able to do from the hockey world? Huh. That's a good one. That's a good one. I know you mentioned you talked to Kenny, so he's he's going to be the voice of the Stanley yes. Cup final. I did talk to Kenny. I've talked to Bob McKenzie. Talked to Butcher Grass. I've talked to. Well, it has to be probably Ronick, right? He was on when he was promoting his book, and yeah. and he's just he's, he's an interesting guy. And he's yeah, he's a. You know, it was basically you you want you just he talked for thirty five minutes, and I just mm. was sat in awe of it. You know what I mean the whole time. Um, he was really good. Mackenzie's always good. Oh, you know what? Here's one I'll throw out. Roy McGregor is a Roy McGregor. A, yeah, a writer in Canada, and. Uh, he he's a legend, a living legend or whatever. And he was an expert on Tom Thompson. Hmm. And he's like this mythical figure of in Canada. And I'm a big fan of the band, the tragically hip. And, um, and uh, he, and the tragically hip have a song about 
Tom Thompson. And one time I had him on and we went line for line and he explained to me what like leaving flowers on his grave at Remembrance Day is like a lyric Hmm. and what that was about. And because like the guy was murdered and his body might be here, but it might be there. I don't know. That was really cool. And then he told me and I'm a huge Burry fan. I was a huge Pablo Mm -hmm. Burry fan growing up. He told me that he thought the greatest game he ever saw a forward play was Burray's game, and he's starting to say the Olympics. And I assume he means the five-goal game in the semis that Burray had against mm-hmm. Finland. And he goes, oh, no, it was the game they lost, the gold medal game they lost one nothing to mm-hmm. Hashik. And I was like, oh, really? You thought yeah, he played, yeah. played better in the one-goal, the no-goal game than the five-goal game? And he's like, you just had to see it. He's like, I oh. said, well, it must have been the best game a goalie ever played then, too, because he did. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> one of, I mean, it's it's a yeah. legendary performance for sure. But, um, yeah, I appreciate you doing it. Really enjoyed it. Those are probably the guys for my question. I guess I'll get you out of here on this. I know, you know, maybe if we, if Jack Buck was on, he would say, I'll see you tomorrow night was kind of his signature call. You know, Vince Scully, maybe it was the call on the Gibson home run. Or something mm-hmm. like that. It seems like every announcer has one. You're early in your career. You might have not have the one that will stand out yet. But do you have a call that's like in first place now as like the signature Alec Faust behind the mic moment? Uh, you know, my first year with the Kings, we had a big one because we just had a penchant for coming back in games. And uh, we had a big win, big comeback win over Vegas at home. And I just blurted out the comeback Kings have done it again. Right. I, I know it's not not like it's not like a you know an enduring indelible call and i feel like you know it has there has to be a moment to meet it right we haven't had a big enough moment yet uh, on a big enough stage where at least with the kings that i've had something but um you know we're we're workshopping a a couple that uh you know maybe maybe we'll uh, find a big moment in the playoffs and um you know maybe maybe something will happen but i'm not i'm not the type to try to you know, want something done, uh, you know, written in advance, uh, you know, it has to meet the moment. It has to be organic. It has to be emotional. Um, so we'll see what happens this year. If the Kings make a run, you know what the kind of big moment out there that could happen for anyone. I feel like it's kind of like NHL announcer roulette right now. Spin the wheel is like, what if Ovechkin comes in and ties or breaks Gretzky's record? Oh boy. Yeah. Well, now the, 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 the national guys might scoop that up, I guess, maybe. Yeah, but there's well, still going to be some local that point, call. They're definitely going to scoop us. If yeah. it gets to that point, we're not doing that game. But if if we had the chance, no, that's it's an interesting one, especially given the Kings' connection with Gretzky. Right. Um, I have to think about that one. That's a good. You uh, got me. You uh, got the head spinning a little bit there. I have to think about that. The NFL had the has it easier because they have fewer games. I remember they set it up. I'm a big you know a big Saints fan, a Breeze guy. Mm-hmm. They set it up where Breeze was going to break the consecutive touchdown. Mm-hmm. Touchdown pass in the game record on Monday Night Football against the Chargers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's too bad the, the NHL couldn't kind of set that up, or they just sure. kind of, all right. Well, Vetchkin probably get the goal right about here, right? You exactly. Know, let's let's uh, Oilers this night and Kings the next night. You know, let's mm. just you know let's make sure he does it against one of Gretzky's teams or whatever. But, right, right. And right. You know what? You yeah. never know. Once they get close yeah. enough, hopefully see. you get some good ones. And thank you for coming on. I appreciate it, and we'll do it again sometime. I'm sure you there's some think. big Kings and Sabres games in the future. Maybe. <laughs> hey, we got a big one coming up on Monday. We do. That we Sabres do. are going to be in town. That's you know? right. Oh, but thank you. Yeah, they've thank been, you very much for the invitation. You guys will catch them right off the bye. Oh, well, the Kings will be off the bye as well, right? 
That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, yeah, King's got the Penguins on Saturday. Mm. And, uh, Sabres coming to town, so we'll uh, we'll get knock the rust off against Pittsburgh. <laughs> All right. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you. you. Got it. Thank you. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy Out in the back seat of my 60 Chevy all right, I want to thank Alex Faust for debuting on the Sportscasters. Man, I like that. I like Alex. He's good. He's a good dude. And congratulations to Northeastern on winning the Bean Pot, not only in the men's, but also the women's. They sweeped the Bean Pot tournament that we talked about. Good for them. The best program in Boston right now. I think that the first game they played against BU. I think they had the two best teams there. Maybe Harvard, you could argue. Uh, but they get the sweep. They win them both. And congratulations to Alex and all the Northeastern fans, including Clay Witt, who we mentioned in the interview, former teammate of my brother at Sioux Falls, South Dakota. All right. Quick book club update. So I've been working hard on this. And uh, first, let's the return E, the science of hockey. The Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport by Kevin Snow. Uh, It's time to interview Kevin. I'm pretty much through this book. Uh, Some really good stuff. I thought interesting stuff on fitness. Uh, Of course, there's a chapter on analytics. Uh, uh, There's really good stuff about development. Um, It's all over the place. Goaltending, face-offs. In-game strategies, really good stuff. The science of hockey, the math, technology, and data behind the sport. I'll get a hold of Kevin. He'll likely be on the next show. Uh, the next book, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit of cough here. The next book that's a guaranteed part of the book club uh, is from a guy who's been on the show one time. His name is Justin Bourne. Played college hockey, I think at Alaska or Alaska Anchorage, one of the Alaska programs. Uh, his dad is a Hall of Fame hockey player. I think he married Clark Gilly's wife. Good guy. Works for Sportsnet or something like that up in Canada. Uh, and he has a book out called Down and Back. Justin Bourne on alcohol, family, and a life in hockey. Uh, I reached out to Justin. He was super cool. Excited to promote on here. The publisher he got me in touch with. Got a book to me. I'm going to start reading it this weekend. Uh, he also played for the tomorrow, Toronto Marlies Sportsnet 2019. Uh, let's see here. Currently hosts The Real Kuiper and Bourne. Alongside Stanley Cup champion Nick Kiprios. It's on Sportsnet. Good dude. Excited to read his story. I know he had some trouble with alcoholism. We'll see what that's about. We'll get him on. All right. A couple other ones I want to mention. So I was scrolling through. Uh, the Apple. This is what I do. So I go on the Apple, the Apple Books podcast, 
and I look at what's new. I look at what's coming up, and I try to find books that I'd like to read, that I'd like to have on the podcast. And the, what I like to do it this way is because so many books come out relative to what I know about. And it's a good way to find things. Gems, you know, diamonds in the rough. Like maybe the uh, science of hockey is an example of that. I found it this way. Uh, and I found this book that was about the 82 World Cup final, which was won by Italy. And I thought, oh, that could be cool. You know, I'd like to read about that. That I don't know a lot about that Italy team. Give me a chance to learn more about it. Give me an excuse to talk Italy soccer. So I reach out, and this guy, Paul, gets back to me quick and says, the author, he doesn't speak English. You know, I don't think he can do it. And also, I can't send you a book because... The international shipping cost after COVID and all these crazy things. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, that's too bad because I think it could have been, you know, a good fit. And and he wrote back and he said, that's, that's you know, a bummer. But I, I got some other books, including one called Inside Diego. And, and these were written by English-speaking guys, and, and I could get you them. But, again, I don't know if I get the books. And I was like, oh, you know, he's sending me a, he wants to send me a Watermark book. And those are really hard to read, especially if they're in PDF. But he came back and he said, look, I'm just going to send you the two books. Um, okay, the one is called Inside Diego, How the Best Football in the World Became the Greatest of All Time. And uh, it's by three people, Fernando Signorini, Luciano Wernicke, and Fernando Molina. And uh, we'll talk to, we'll read that, and I assume talk to at least one of those people. Uh, and then he's going to send me the Italy book. I don't know the exact name of that because, of course, now I can't find the book. Um, actually, that's not true. I'll tell you the name in one second. The name of the Italy book is The Game by Piero Cialini. So I will get those two books. I will read those books. And hopefully we'll have an interview with one or more of those four different authors on those books. But for now, Justin Bourne, Down and Back, On Alcohol, Family, and A Life in Hockey. And The Science of Hockey, The Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport by Kevin Snow, which is just about done. Also, the number one book on that, Apple chart right now is a book called Winning Fixes Anything about the Astros and the scandal that they had there. And I reached out to the author and he said he'd love to do it and sent me to a publicist I'd worked with before. So we'll see what happens with that one. Winning Fixes Everything by Evan Drellich. Uh, there's also some really good ones coming out soon that I'm looking forward to. Um, there's a book by Billy Walters called Gambler Secrets from a Life at Risk, which Armin Katayan is the co-writer of. Armin's going to be on. Talk about that one. There's a book called 62 about Aaron Judge. There's a book about the 98 Yankees by Jack Curry. Joe Piznanski has a book in September, Why We Love Baseball. You know we'll do that. There's a Vince McMahon book coming out at the end of March called Ringmaster I Want to Do. And in May, John Feinstein has a new book as well. So a lot of good stuff coming for the book club this year and we're just kind of getting going 
And uh, we got two good hockey ones right now. And we're adding at least one, if not two soccer ones to the list, maybe a baseball one. And on we go from here. So let's take a break. When we come back, Al Strachan, speaking of the book club, uh, was on the book club to promote his last book. And uh, it was a, a, a hockey's hot stove, the untold stories of the original insiders. And uh, I was really into that and really loved Al and wanted to have him back to talk about his other book called 99 that he wrote with Wayne Gretzky. Uh, and we're going to do that now. So let's take a break. We'll be right back with Al Strachan. Thank you for checking out the Sportscasters podcast. Don't forget to check out my other show, the 24-inch podcast. Hollywood Dave Rollins, Paula Bennett, and myself look back at the career of Hulk Hogan, the immortal one. We do it every other week. We cover matches from the 80s, the 90s, his entire career. We read the news from the era. It's a great nostalgic look back at the greatest wrestling career in the history of the business. Be sure to check it out right on this feed, brother. Hey, Al, how you doing today? Welcome back to the Sportscasters. Great. I'm great. How are you doing? It's been a long, winding road to this interview as Al was the person who I was supposed to interview the day that I took the ambulance ride. Uh, that led to my surgery on February 7th and eight months of uh, Crohn's hell. Uh, but we're back and better and finally was able to hook this up again. How are you doing today, Al? I'm very well, thanks. Very nice well. and warm down in Florida where I live now. And, you know, with all the other retired old farts, we, <laughs> you caught me on one of my non-golf days. <laughs> what did you think of the job Florida and the Panthers did with the All-Star game down there last week? It's hard to say. I don't like really the idea of getting rid of the coaches they did, but I do like Paul Maurice, both as a person and as a coach. But they don't seem to have gelled together. And I think sometimes people who make up these teams, they they look a lot at the statistics and and not really at the people. And uh, I wouldn't say that Kachuk has been bad for them by far, Uh, but he just doesn't seem to fit quite as well. He's fitting and he's scoring and, and things are good, but you know, Barkov isn't playing as well as he was, although he has been hurt a little bit and uh, they lost a little bit of the grit when Holmquist, uh, Hornquist got old, as, as people do. You know, I think he's only got three points this year and he was an integral part of the power play. I, I thought that uh, giving up Mackenzie Weger was a big, big, big mistake. I, I watched him play for half the season as their number one defenseman last year because Ekblad got hurt. And I thought that he should have had all-star status, but of course it was too late in the season when, when Ekblad got hurt. Um, and now he's being misused in Calgary by Daryl Sutter, but that's not the first. And uh, they miss him, though. He was a very strong skater. Man- Montour has come through for them a lot. So they've got an interesting team, and I think they can still do something, but they never have had total consistency in goal from getting Bobrovsky, who had two dozen trophies before he came to Florida. 
but he's never played this in the standard since then. He will have the occasional brilliant game, but he'll also give up goals at the wrong time. And as I was saying, you know, these are people, not just numbers. And it's demoralizing if you're playing your heart out and then the, your goalie sips one. And so, you know, well, and, and things change. So it's just not quite there with that team. And uh, I don't know if it will come together. Perhaps it will. I mean, Paul Maurice has been to a Stanley Cup final before with his teams. And I've known people who played for him, and, and they tell me he's a very good coach to play for. He's very knowledgeable and, and helpful, and uh, he's, a, he's a good player's coach. And he understands the, the young people, which a lot of the older coaches haven't done over the years, and, and that's why it doesn't work in some places. But uh, Maurice is still a, a relatively young guy, not as young as some of the coaches in there now, but still relatively young, and I think he understands that culture, which has changed a lot in the last 10 or 15 years or so. So so it, it's hard to say. I, you know, they, they could be good. It might not be good. We'll have to see. But what I think is overlooked in this franchise sometimes is the huge loss of Joel Kendall when Gary proved once again that he knows absolutely nothing about hockey and suspended Kenville 11 years after the fact for an incident that didn't even involve his player uh, when he thought that uh, Quinville should just drop everything in the middle of the Stanley Cup playoffs literally it was in the 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 issue was towards the end of the semifinals and went into the finals and because Kenville didn't get sufficiently involved right yeah 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 and so 11 years after the fact, he kicks Kenville out as the Panthers coach. And Kenville is a great coach. I've known him well. I've known him from the years he was a player. He's from Windsor, Ontario, as I am. And uh, he was exactly what the Panthers needed. And, and when they lost him through no fault of their own, just because Gary doesn't understand hockey, that was a big blow to the Panthers. And trading players hasn't really overcome it. They've tried to do, do what they can, but I don't think they're there yet. Well, uh, speaking of Gary and not knowing hockey, and he certainly knows you know, nobody here in Buffalo has any kind words for him. Uh, but maybe if you're making a case for him, one of those things on his positive side would be building markets like the Florida market and the hockey world sort of was the, the hockey world spotlight was on Florida with the all-star game a couple of weeks ago. How did you think they handled it? And what do you think about the market in general and how it's grown? The market- it's there are hardcore fans here, and I think that this market is the same as all the southern markets, um, including which would of course include Dallas and Los Angeles and Carolina. San Jose. Yeah. If, yeah, if you're winning, then the the fans will show up, and if you're not winning, there's considerable competition, and they won't show up. Everybody is critical of the Panthers for having a lot of empty seats, and and they do, there's no doubt about that. But the Panthers have never won since what was it their third season uh, when they got there. Ninety six, yeah, ninety six, yeah, right? ninety six. So you know that's more than a quarter of a century ago now, and and so it, Gary hasn't done that much. I don't think he has put the teams in some locales, and that's all very nice. But uh, the. TV market isn't growing, and I think he's done an awful lot to change the game for the good of the people who don't come to the game. 
And he's listened to them all, and oh, you know, we don't want to have it as violent and all these things, you know, and and we we want to get rid of the ingrained hockey culture. Well, maybe the fans who come to the games, the real fans, don't want that, and you're turning some of them off. This game has changed an awful lot in the last ten years or so. I know Gary's been there longer than that, but this game now is blindingly fast, which is nice in some ways, but. Is it as intense? And I would say that it's not as intense. And I would say that these days it's very difficult to score if you don't have a power play. But on the other hand, we're not calling that many power plays, you know, because the players know now that they can't really touch anybody or there will be a power play. So you have people roaring up and down the ice at breakneck speed and shooting, and they've still never solved the, go- the problem of the goalies being too big. I mean, that has gone on for a long, long time, and they make small steps in that regard, and they limit the price. But, I mean, just look at the goalies in the era of the, not only six teams, but even after that. But now they look like the Michelin man out there. Most of them wear two sets of hockey pants. They've got huge shoulder pads, and they're fat around them. You know, you couldn't hurt those guys with an elephant rifle. And and <laughs> they are out there, and they're blocking most of the goal. And, and when they fall down, now they're, they're very capable, too. I mean, I wouldn't want to suggest that they're not athletic people. They definitely are. And when they go down into that butterfly stance, and they've got these huge pads, 14 inches at least, that's what supposed to be the maximum, and they run right across the bottom now because uh, the top of one pad locks with the top of the other pad, and they're down. So there's the bottom 14 inches of the goal gone. And and the goalies are now very big if you look at them. Most of them, the incoming guys, they're 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, People like Vasilevsky, Saros, all these guys, right. they're, they're big. And so when they're down on their knees, their shoulders are still up around the crossbar. They're not giving anything up at the top when they're down on their knees and blocking the bottom half. And then they got this big wide body. And so what happens? In order to score, you usually got to get a deflection in front. And it feels like though, it feels like hmm? though, Al, it feels like this is a year where we've seen a little bit of a switch towards the forwards a little bit. It. Yeah, you know, the, bit, it but. feels like this year the goalies aren't quite as good. I saw ESPN did a top ten list today of the goalies in the league, and right when you get to about seven or eight, you start to say, oh, "Those really, those goalies really the ten best." You know, I don't know. There's been more goals this year, more scoring this year, so maybe there's a little bit of a turning point with that. Maybe. Well, there may be. That yeah. might be nice, but even if it is, is it really that significant? And, and do yeah. the fans notice the difference? Are we getting? Spectacles, for instance, I mean, my complaint about basketball is that it's always the same. I mean, you, you watch the basketball highlights on, on the sports shows in the evening, and you'll see three highlights. Somebody will shoot one from the last area code, and it'll swish. Somebody will Dunk. basically run like yeah. a fullback up yeah. the middle and cram it down, yeah. and somebody will throw it way up in the air, another guy will slam it. Now, then we switch to another set of teams. Uh, the only thing that changes is the color of the sweaters or whatever they call them, the vests that the guys are wearing, and they show the same three highlights. Then they do another team, and it's always the same. That's all there is to basketball. I mean, if, if you go out for a minute or two 
in in basketball, let's say you go get a beer, so you're gone five or six minutes. You come back a basketball game, you say, "What happened?" Oh, well, they scored eleven and we scored ten. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> so you go out and in a hockey game, you come back after five minutes. Oh, you should have seen this beautiful backhander guy went around, and then the goalie made a big save. But you know all that sort of stuff, and and so so hockey can be a lot more exciting than basketball and should be a lot more exciting than basketball. But is it? I mean, to your point that the goals are going up, I can accept that. But are they nice goals or are they just deflections and and that the fans don't really see? They see a, a shot from the point and now they see the red light go on. They don't realize that somewhere along the way in that crowd in front of the net, the, the puck got touched or something like that. You know, it's not where you, you stick handle around a couple of guys or you have a three on two break or anything like that. You know, I, I've heard coaches say, boy, we had a good game. We didn't allow any odd man breaks. Oh, so what does that do for the fans? It's nice for the coaches, but no odd man breaks. There's no three on twos, no two on, two on ones. And, and you're pleased about that. You think you provided a spectacle or you think the fans just came to see you improve your <laughs> personal coaching record? That yeah. reminds me of uh, and, game one of the 2006 Eastern Conference Final 7-6 Sabres-Ottawa. Only two people didn't love that game, right? The coaches, Lindy Ruff and uh, and Brian Murray were the only ones who didn't enjoy that game, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Afterwards, they're the only ones that were like, that was terrible. Well, we can't have that again in this series. And then I think game two was one nothing. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they fixed that. So, yeah. yeah, so, you know, the, uh, I think hockey is encountering some problems. I think that uh, I hear, I don't, it surely hasn't been announced yet, but I'm led to believe that in Canada, where you get to see a lot of the games on Sportsnet sure. and yep. that Sportsnet bid $5.1 billion for that uh, contract, they're not even going to bid for the next one. They've lost so much money on it, they will not bid for the next one, and they'll just let it go to TSN. Go back to TSN. And Interesting. Interesting. So, um, we'll see. I, you know, I it, think it, if I'm going to put a spin, a positive spin on it, I would say that the rise of the skating defensemen, the McCars and the Dalines and the McAvoy in Boston, those kind of guys, that kind of player, the rise of them and the way they skate and the way they push pace has been really good for the game, and I think that they're a big reason. Yeah. We've seen a little bit of a boost in goals here. So yeah, I, absolutely. You know, I'm going to try to be a little bit more optimistic, uh, but I, I hear you, though. I hear you, but, you know. Yeah. Well, it's not, a, it's not really a matter of optimism or pessimism. It's just a, more of an examination and, and what I see going on. I would like to see hockey being more successful, and, and and I certainly agree with you. And that's the point I was making earlier with regard to Uyghur did that, and now they've got Montour doing it on this particular franchise here that you were asking me about. And, yeah, I love to watch those guys, and I think the fans do. And it goes way back to the days of Bobby Orr and sure. Paul Coffey, those yeah. kind of guys you know and Bobby Orr's uh, McCarr's agent right so yeah that's... yeah and but if you look at these guys they they'll be leading the rush they'll be up there they'll be behind them and and then not out of position coming back I mean they get back they're right. they're back there to defend if they're it goes recovery. the other way yeah, they're, sick. they're not just one-way guys they're excellent offensively but they're also extremely sound defensively totally and and I think that's a, a great thing and and there are some really good young players coming out now you know the we, we seem to be getting at least one generational player in every draft and so right. you know to me a generation is right. more than a year have you seen Bedard <laughs> so, have you seen Bedard at all hmm? have you got to watch Bedard a little bit maybe World Junior or something else 
No, no. I'm down in Florida, and we don't get to see that sort of stuff. No, really? I, you don't I, get I an NHL Network the, down there? Uh, well, I don't get the NHL Network. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> you know, I, I could, I guess. I just basically watch what's available, and I go to the Odd Panthers game and stuff like that. But gotcha. I, I don't. I'm not as conversant with it all as I used to be. Well, Bedard is is pretty good, I think. Yeah, I've heard that and I've read that and I'm, I've talked to people about him. Yeah, and then, but he's the he's this year's generation. Interesting because yeah, he's I've, little. I've seen some clips of him. He's only five yeah. nine, you know, so it's a different kind of player. You know what I mean? Then usually he's getting this kind of hype. He's only five foot nine, and that's probably generous. Yeah, I, you know. There is, yeah, I guess there is that, but you know, you look at some of these guys now. I, I think the small player has been allowed to come back. Oh, for sure, I agree the, with that. Yeah, you know, the Johnny Goudros of the world, right? And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they can they can play now, and 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 I think that's a good thing too. You know, same. Theo Fleury was always one of my favorites, and uh, you know, the little guys who are intense and want to, I got a point to prove, and yeah, and then they'll go for it. Yeah, it's good. You mentioned basketball before, and I always think of this, that Ahmad Rashad was the guy that Jordan trusted. And in hockey, you were the guy that Gretzky trusted. You were kind of the guy that he would call after Game 7 against the Leafs to talk about the hat trick that he scored with the Kings (laughs) or whatever. Give me a great Gretzky story. Give me an example of that you remember most, where everybody wanted him. And you got them, and this is what you guys talked about, or whatever. Give uh, me one. Well, there were prob- probably a, a number. Of, one, one I guess that was notable would be the Nagano Olympics when he didn't when, shoot. If you remember, yeah. there was a, a change in the so-called hockey culture at that time, and they put Bobby Clark and Ganey and one other guy, the guy from Ottawa, in charge of the team, and they wanted to make Lindros the star now and they wanted to him be the focus of all the future team Canada's and to turn Gretzky's mantle over to Lindros. So when we get to Nagano and then they've made Lindros the captain and they uh there's this stage up there and they've got the media because it's the Olympics, right? You don't first one they played in too. First one all the NHL huh? that was the first one that all the NHL guys played in, just for the listeners that might yeah. not remember, yeah. So we're in this it's sort of like a you know a, a movie theater type of thing with a or, or a theater with with the stage up there and everybody uh, the media is all sitting out in the seats and uh, the Clark and that comes out and then they introduce uh, Eric Lindros and all the other players are standing in the back and uh, and they ask you know a question of Lindros and and, uh, and then they said well we want to talk to Wayne Gretzky. And uh, they said, well, no, Gretzky, we're just having uh, the captain talk right now, and we'll talk, you know. And then the people say, well, well we want Gretzky. So um, anyway, they say, no, I can't. So I was there, you know, not in the front row exactly, but pretty near the front. And Wayne's in the back by the curtain, and he looks down at me and gives me a waves me up. <laughs> I just went up on the stage and, and they started to say hey you can't go up there and Wayne says I want to talk to him and so I went up there and then and then the hordes followed and uh, so uh, everybody who wanted to talk to Gretz got to do so but, like a scrum, uh, so like that, a scrum. That, that was one of them I guess that's a good one and, uh, but uh, there, were, there were quite a few when he was being traded 
to uh, St. Louis, and we were in Winnipeg in the middle of the week, and there were all these stories, and and, uh, he said, after the game, he said, come on down to the penalty box. So he goes out to the penalty box, and then I follow him, and he closes the gate. And so all the people are standing out there. And uh, I said, what's going on? He said, I'm, I'm going to, to St. Louis. He said, but he said, if I were you, he said, get a, get a plane and go to, go to Vancouver because the St. Louis game is in Vancouver on the weekend. I'll be there for that, and I'll give you a call at the hotel when when you get in at the West End, I said okay, and but you know all these I, you feel bad sometimes about these things. You know it's nice that you've got that kind of rapport with with somebody, but I'm also got a lot of friends in the media, and they're guys I've known all my life, and you know I, I work with them, and um, so you feel like you're a bit of a dork actually, you know. Right. But, but if Wayne says you know I just I'll let you in on this and. Uh, you know, and, and then then you do that, you know. And, uh, Two follow-ups there. One, I want to ask you about the Olympics, because what sticks out to me with the Olympics in 98 and Gretzky is him not shooting in the shootout yeah. against Hasek. What did he say yeah. to you about that? He said, that, well, he, he'll never criticize a coach, right. for starters. That's, uh, so even though he had an occasional run-in with a coach like Robbie Fertorek and, and obviously this particular one, uh, he wouldn't, he'd just say, well, you know, it was the coach's decision. So, but I, I started looking into it and, uh, it was, you know, it, it loses its impact after a few days or whatever, but a year later, the Globe and Mail, I was working for, no, sorry, is it the Sun then, I guess? Uh, no, is it the Globe, sorry. And, and they said, it's, it's been a year since the, the Nagano Olympics and, and can you, uh, find out from Gretzky what happened? So, so, well, you know, this is, uh, they're playing today, you know, and tonight. And um, uh, so it was an afternoon game, I guess, and on the Saturday. And so I called and got into the dressing room. And, and, like, they never let you talk to somebody in the dressing room. But anyway, Wayne came out and talked to me on the phone. And he, I said, what the hell happened there? You know, you can say now. And so he told me what he thought had happened, and that was that about uh, three or four days before, he had been in the room getting a, a massage and that sort of thing, and um, one of the assistant coaches had been there, and they were talking about the possibility of a shootout. And um, he said, well, you know, whatever they decide, whatever the coaches decide, and that's what he always said about anything and uh, with regard to coaches. And so... The assistant coach took that to mean that he didn't really want to shoot, which was not the case. It was just Wayne being Wayne and, you know, just uh, being a team guy. Right. And so apparently he passed along the message that uh, that Wayne wasn't really that interested in shooting. And so Wayne thinks that that was, uh, was a real factor. It was um, Flurry, Bork, Neuendijk, Lindros, and Shanahan who shot. I think if you're going to go down there, right. you you got to go. You you got to shoot the Gretzky bullet. I think you know you can't. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there was, there was uh, yeah, no problem, no no doubt whatsoever. Nothing wrong with and, those guys. Uh, those are five superstars, five Hall of Famers, right? All five of those well, guys. Well, I mean, you wouldn't, in the Hall you of wouldn't fame. 
they, they allegedly used Bork because he could hit the styrofoam targets in right, that right, NHL right. shootout. <laughs> but, but, you know, all five of them made the same move. They don't try to stick handle past Hasek. Right. So, I mean, if, if Bork is there because he can blast the targets in the corner, then blast. why doesn't he blast the yeah, shot blast at one of the one. corners? Exactly. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, it might not have been. I mean, maybe no one was beating Hasek. I mean, Bray... Bray scored five goals against Finland and then couldn't get one by him in the um, in the in the final. And your friend Roy McGregor, who wrote the forward in the book ninety nine, who's a good friend of this show, he told me he thought that Bray played the best game he ever seen a forward play in the final against yeah. Hashik and couldn't get one. Um, so maybe it, you know maybe that was just Hashik's time, regardless. But if I'm Canada, yeah. I want to go down with Gretzky shooting, not with Gretzky on the bench. Oh yeah, you absolutely have to. I mean, this, I mean, Brewery was a great player. Gretzky was better. Yeah. Gretzky oh, of course. Yeah. In the history yeah. of the game, so yeah. You know, how can you leave him sitting on the bench? You it's can't like leaving Babe Ruth on the bench in a home run derby. Yes, know? very it's foolish. Just, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But you mentioned St. Louis too. I'm sorry. You mentioned St. Louis too. Did he want to go there? How did that happen? That he ended up there. Is that him just had not having a say or? Did he think that that year that was the best chance for a run, or how did that happen? It obviously ended with Steve Eiserman scoring one of my favorite goals in NHL history in double overtime, the slap shot goal. From- yeah, I was there for that. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, there's a couple of stories about that series that are entertaining. But- okay. <laughs> Love it. Well, but what, what happened there was, of course, they were having problems in Los Angeles, and he was going to become a free agent. And Keenan really, really seriously wanted them. And so um, Keenan, I was, I was sort of in the middle on that one because a very close friend of Mike Keenan's as well. And Keenan would call me and say, tell Gretzky to do this. And Gretzky would say, well, tell Keenan this. <laughs> and so for weeks I was going back and forth. And, and uh, Wayne would say, well, tell Mike he's, he's got to call the, the Kings, he's got to try and work out this, and this is probably what they want in the way of a package and all that sort of stuff. And uh, so so I was I was in the middle of it, because Wayne couldn't do it legally, and, and, and Keenan couldn't do it legally. That's tampering, right? Yeah. So uh, so I was in the middle, but yeah, he, he wanted to go. It's Janet's hometown, and uh, he still lives there a lot of the time now. Okay. And uh, so... He was he was happy with it, and and they thought they had a chance because uh, he he played for Keenan and the Team Canada's, and he knew what he was like. And then there were uh, you know that was a pretty good team, as you say, a seventh game double overtime, right? And that was with the backup goalie. Don't forget Nick Kiprios had run over Grant Fuhrer, who was the goalie, right? Sure. And 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 cracked up his knee, so. Um, you know they they did this with the backup goalie, and uh, it was. Uh, it was, uh, now a lot of people get quite, on Wayne for that goal, saying he turned it over at the at the blue, at the red line there, and you know. Well, yeah, he, yeah okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he he turned it over back at, well around the other blue line actually, you know. But yeah, most things happen. Yeah. But like, I don't see that's you can hardly blame the guy that did that unless you really want to find a way to blame him, um, because those kind of turnovers happen. If you turn it over at your own blue line, that's one thing. But to turn it over at the other blue line is, is you know, you've got defenders there, right? It's just I mean, an all-time great shot by Iserman that beats Casey, who's in there, like you yeah. said, because Fuhr is out. So, 
It was in that upper corner, yeah. and I, I don't think Casey ever saw it. You can't it shoot was, it better. It through a crowd. You can't was, shoot huh? it any better than that. I mean, no. Yeah, that's no. just getting into one, right? Uh, I yeah. want to ask you a little bit about Edmonton, and because we always hear about when you hear about when you think about Messier, it's like he's the ultimate leader in hockey, right? Like he was able to win after Gretzky left. He was able to break 1940 yeah. in New York. But you don't hear as much about Gretzky. He was always the C, though. Like, what was the leadership dynamic like in Edmonton between Gretzky and Massier? Was that an issue that needed to be managed by the coaches, or was it? Were they a great team? No. Maybe a one-two kind of thing. What was the leadership dynamic like there? Yeah, they were. They were very much a team, and and they were very good friends. When we first went there, he lived in an apartment building, and uh, he was one floor uh, above or below mess I don't remember which and uh, this was in the days when if you wanted to watch any out of town stuff you had to have your big satellite dish on the roof right, and all that right. sort of stuff yep. <laughs> and so Messier had the dish up there and uh, he hooked Gretzky into it uh, but Gretzky had to watch whatever mess was watching <laughs> so <laughs> you know when it was hockey and that it was all right right Anything else, you know, they didn't. But that had always been their relationship. They they worked together, and this they were so totally different in their approach to the game. And in that mess was absolutely mean and vicious. People don't realize how vicious this guy was. I I, I don't know how many games he would have missed if he were playing today. But uh, you know, he got suspended. A number of, I think, seven times, every one of which was richly deserved. <laughs> and uh, you know, when he he took out uh, Al Samuelson there, I think he just uh, with a cross check knocked out a few teeth and and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and he got called up for the suspension because I think it was his third of the year or something. And Brian O'Neill said, you know, uh, if you got anything you'd, you'd like to say about this incident, and Messi said, yeah, I wish I'd fucking killed him. <laughs> and and some of the guys he ran, he even ran that. Uh, there was a guy from his own team had been a teammate at one point, and he was not a big kid, but he got in the way and guess he mess cross checked him across the chest. I think he cracked his thorax. I don't like he he was he was truly vicious, and and people don't realize that about him. They say, oh, he was a tough guy and he was a strong player and all that sort of thing. He was more than that. Uh, and so people, when they played against the Oilers, were worried, first of all, about Semenko, and then a little while later for Semenko and McSorley, and then later on for McSorley. But they also were very worried about Messi a lot of the times. You, you turn your back on him near the boards, and, and you were liable to get hammered and flattened. And you know, the kind of thing now that is just an automatic five in a game, and nobody even thinks about it. He might get two sometimes, you know, as to think about it while they were wheeling the poor guy off that he'd just plastered. <laughs> but, uh, he, so he played one type of game, and, of course, that was not, not Wayne's game. Right, and he and, was bold, um, too. Like, he'd say, like, we're going to win tonight. Gretzky, yeah. that's not really his style, right? He wouldn't do that, I don't think, or didn't do no. it. Yeah. No. But I, I was with that team an awful lot an awful lot over over those years and i i never saw any hint of animosity not only between wayne and mark between anybody on the team uh 
Sather had been in Montreal. Well, look at the player. way they rallied around Smith, right? When he makes the big mistake, that could kill a team. Yeah, that, that kind of thing, and it, they won the next yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were they were all uh, good to each other, you know. And and I knew these guys well enough. I'd, I'd go to bars with them, and we'd talk about all kinds of things that would never get in the paper and all that sort of thing. But at no time in all those times, anybody say, "Well, what's that?" How come he's on the team? Well, you know, <laughs> how did he make that mistake the other night? Or none of that stuff. They were always. I've, I've never seen a, a team that was so animosity free. To be honest, you know, I know that Gretzky and and Messier were buds because I, when uh, the Rangers won the cup in '94, the day of the parade, Messier, Leach, and Richter were on the Howard Stern show in New York, and this was at the peak of Stern show's mm-hmm. powers in New York. He's getting nine to twelve million a day. Uh, listening to that, and those guys are on. And you maybe remember the next year when the Devils won, there was a big controversy because they faked a stunt that said that Jackie the Joke Man took the cup in the in the bathroom and pooped in it. And um, mm. and uh, there was a little bit of trouble for uh, the um, Claude Lemieux, uh, but he had to try to explain to everyone, look, it was, they're joking, it's the radio, it's a joke. Uh, but in 94, anyway, Howard was teasing Messier about Madonna, because there had been rumors about Messier and Madonna in the papers and stuff. And Messier basically yeah. said, look at Gretzky's wife is good friends with her, and that's how I met. So it's like, oh, well, that's a good friend. You know what I mean? That's a good friend right there. Yeah. You know, Gretzky's looking out for his friend. He gives, he hooks him up with Madonna. Um, yeah, I think they were more than rumors. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. Uh, you were You were talking about international hockey a little bit, and they struggle so much right now to try to get together a best on best. And we're wasting years of, you know, McDavid versus Matthew. Some of the great storylines that there could be with the best on best right now. But I had, I was lucky enough to have Scotty Bowman on when the pandemic started. And we were talking a little bit about 87 and the Canada Cup. And I used to work at a pro shop, a hockey pro shop. And we had the VHS of that. And we would wear those games out. I mean, I think by the time I left the job for college, like you couldn't even play the tape anymore. Some of the best hockey ever. And, of course, the famous goal with Lemieux, Gretzky, and uh, Howard Chuck yeah. taking the draw. What do you remember about the 87 Canada Cup? It's one of my favorite hockey things ever, and I don't have a dog in that fight. But, wow, what a series and, and what a thing in Hamilton. I yeah. wish I would have went right down the street from me here in Buffalo. Could have been there in 60 minutes, but what about it? It was a tremendous yeah. uh, series. Yeah, they were all 6-5 games. Yeah. And... Um, the the first one the the Russians won, and uh, they afterwards Gretzky said you know he, he said my dad was all over me last night, yeah, he said you, you know he said I cost him the game, and he said you know it's bad enough losing a game but how do you think I feel when when after the game your dad tells you it was your fault, and uh, but he, he said it was my fault, <laughs> and he said but I I really feel bad about that game and uh, you know. We're, and then you know we'll, why we'll why was better. it his fault like what did he think he did wrong specifically i think he, i don't know i can't remember exactly i don't know he gave the puck away or something okay. he hadn't played well it would uh, be a defensive mistake that didn't he made, play I well guess, enough you know yeah. and, sure. and and um they walter was on the plane with him so he he went on right after the the game walter's climbing on and the team's there and wow. wait that he made a mess of it you know walter's busting his <laughs> so, balls huh jeez yeah, but then that game afterwards, I, you know, I talked to him. That's but a few days later, he was. So, he said, I, "I was so tired." He said, "You know, Mike kept sending me out there, 
He said, I, I had literally pissed myself on the bench. He said, I was so tired, I couldn't stop it. I didn't have enough control in my muscles to stop. And and he said, Mike kept sending me out every other shift. And, uh, and uh, but then, you know, Howard Chuck did a great job of hooking the one guy that was coming back, you know, turned him into a helicopter and, uh, and, and, and Wayne says, he said, I saw Larry Murphy there. He said, but Larry Murphy had no more chance of getting that pass from the than than my father did, and he was in the fourth row. He said, he, said, he was looking for Mario because earlier in the series, um, they'd had some exhibition games and that, and and they'd been doing the tic tac toe a bit. And Wayne said to Mario at one point, he put it directly, he said, "Look, he said you." do the scoring i'll do the passing so never mind this passing back and all this bullshit right. i'll, I'll yeah. set you up and you put it in the net and uh and that's what they did yeah. and wayne you know mario had been very reticent about being a star up to that point and he was very difficult to deal with if you got to deal with him at all and and there there'd always been this perceived animosity between wayne and mario and if there was that, it would be on Mario's way. And and Wayne made a point during that series of of being close to Mario. And and uh, so when even the very first day, when they're out on on the ice in the practice, and Keenan comes out, and the guy gathered around, and Wayne just went and stood right beside Mario. And and it went on from there. They really developed a rapport on that series. Did Mario have a guy like Gretzky had you? I don't think so. No, he, he never talked to anybody very much. No, and um, he he was really uh, really insular. I've always felt that Mario never really wanted to to play hockey. He never really had a love for hockey like Gretzky did. I mean, there are no pictures of Mario playing in his backyard when he was four. Sure, Cause, but you grow up in. Um, and it was just Lachine, was it down there? It's down by the rapids in the St. Lawrence, just outside of Montreal. And when you grow up down there and you're a big kid and you're athletic and, you know, where it's winter, you know, 10 months a year and two months of bad skating and everything, what are you going to do for sports? Well, you become a hockey player. And he just had so much natural ability. It was phenomenal. And then, and he became a huge star, but I, I don't think he ever had the drive to become a hockey player. And even right from the day he was drafted, when he wouldn't go down and, and put the sweater on because he was already in a contract dispute before he'd ever been drafted. Right. So this was never, Wayne would never have done anything like that, you know? So I don't think he ever really wanted to be a star. And, and when he was, um, then he just uh, put up with what he had to put up with and did very little else. So, no, I don't think there ever was someone like that with him. And, you know, now that I think about it, too, he only came back because his son wanted to watch him play, too, right? I mean, that was really what got him back when he had that comeback yeah. and, and the first game was against Toronto there. I mean, I remember there was a sign in the igloo that night, God bless Austin, because Mario had really made the <laughs> yeah. point to say that, you know, he scored on his first shift, didn't he? Yep, I remember. I was watching it on the CBC here in Buffalo. They they aired the game yeah. that night, and maybe yeah. maybe there was even a little bit of hot stove that night too. I don't remember. Uh, you can. <laughs> Al's got two great books. He's got more than two, but two I really want to recommend. Uh, one was the one he came on to promote last time, and that's Hockey's Hot Stove. 
the untold stories of the original insiders, all about Hockey Night in Canada. And that's another, I mean, we already did an hour on all the great stories around that. And then 99, Gretzky, his game, his story, uh, Al with Wayne. And that's a lot of what we hit on here today. And we didn't, I mean, we did, I could do two more hours, but Al wants to golf or whatever people do in Florida. You know what I mean? So we can't just be, like, I didn't have them all day to just, we'll get them back and we'll do some more Gretzky stories or whatever for sure. But uh, I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for coming back. Is there anything you want to promote? You want to okay. throw out your Twitter or anything like that? Anything you want to mention? Well, I got a book coming out in April that you could. Uh, it's a, it's not for hockey fans though. It's uh, it's called the wrongly executed airmen. I don't get to name the titles. I wouldn't have called it that. And it's being published in England, and it has to do with a guy who was in the uh, Royal Air Force in 1942. Okay, World War Two stuff. Yeah, and it's it's to, it's nonfiction, totally nonfiction, and uh, he was charged with murder and rape while he was in Canada, and convicted and hanged, and I managed to unearth an awful lot of original material, and there's no way he was guilty, and so they hanged the hanged the guy who was innocent, and the the book comes out in April, and you can get it. You'll be able to get it in the U.S. I don't think it's going to be available in Canada, strangely enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on that. But it'll be certainly be available uh, as on an iPad, you know. Or yeah, another Weak Kings scenario or something, right? Uh, Weak Kings, the Tragically Hip song, was about the uh, wrongly accused guy. And they even mm-hmm. call out the CBC. Uh, probably not the same case, but, you know, a similar uh, situation. Yeah, Just yeah. a quick shout-out to the great Tragically Hip. Rest in peace to Gord Downey. All right, yeah. Al, let me get you out here on this. I look forward to that. I'll definitely get you on to talk about it. I love a good World War II story. You know, it's interesting, and I miss you as an active writer in the game because it seems like there is a need for people to tell stories about everything that's wrong with hockey and not enough <laughs> stories about all of the great things about the game. And it seems like me and you are on the same pages on that, and I see it on your Twitter and I see some of the things that get written about and you know so many of these young hockey writers I wonder do they even like hockey you know and uh, I it doesn't seem to and 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 I just wonder like is there a way out of this for the game like what we talked about not scoring I think that's really what is going to hurt the game ultimately it's just that yeah. it doesn't seem like anyone's glorifying it anymore uh, if you no, re- it, read about no, it it's how horrible these, it is uh, yeah they're worried about these social issues. I mean, there's been a what should be a huge story that I know that people like Tony Gallagher in Vancouver, Scott Morrison in Toronto, and, and myself, we would have been all over if it was in our day and age that the NHL Players Association is going to have a new head who is probably worse than Alan Eagleson. He's a, he's a pawn of Jeremy Jacobs, who is very anti-player, the owner of the Boston the Bruins, Bruins yep. if you don't know him. Buffalo guy. And Jacobs and, uh, and Bettman uh, are hand-in-hand, hand and they do a lot of things that are definitely not for the players. And yet they've installed a guy, the Players Association, installing a guy who is a total pawn of Jeremy Jacobs and isn't even a lawyer. And, uh, you know... I would have been all over that story, and as I say, and so would these other guys, and now we're worried about what kind of hockey tape uh, people have on in the pregame warm-ups, and are they going to be part of a parade or something like that, you know? They're, they're missing 
the hockey it. part of hockey. There's going to be another 10% in the escrow accounts or something, right? Like, man, too bad. It's, for, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, 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 uh, you look at hockey players and the, the truly elite ones, they're being paid what, around $11 million or something now, which is what they got when Bob Goodenow left 20 years ago. So they've had 20 years of bad management, and now it's going to get even worse. So. But they've got no one to blame but themselves. They they do this, and they don't appear to be that interested in the issues, and there's nobody in the media to help them understand them and be interested. So this is what you get. Well, listen, one of the things I love about this show is I've been able to talk to people like Roy McGregor, yourself, Scott Morrison, who you mentioned was on. Uh, I think he's working on a Keenan book right now and said he'll come on and talk about that when it's out. But it's been a pleasure for me as a hockey fan, someone who loves the classic stories. Thank you for telling them. And I'm going to get you back at some point, whether it's to talk about the world war two book or whatever. I have your email. I appreciate all the time. Sounds good. I'll be around. Talk to you later. I want to thank Al Strachan and Alex Faust for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can hear this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com, uh, like my friend Ian Ross often does and many others. I always appreciate you. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram. I'm at sportscasters there. Uh, but get in touch if you can. And don't forget about the 24-inch podcast uh, at 24-inch podcast on Instagram and on Twitter uh, at 24-inch podcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook group you can search out. Uh, I also want to mention I was on a episode of the Rush Fans Roundtable. Uh, if you go on YouTube, that's where you find that. You search Rush Fans. You go to the Rush Fans page. And one of their most recent episodes of the Roundtable was top rush songs to get pumped up to and i did that and my three picks were well i won't tell you go check it out on there if you want all right one last thing for me today and february 16th which was yesterday uh, would have been my grandmother paula's 94th birthday uh she died in 1995 i was 15 years old when she died and you know essentially it's the worst thing that's happened in my life you know it's the tragedy of my lifetime so far to lose my grandmother she got sick around 1988 with alzheimer's disease and she deteriorated pretty quickly and pretty horribly and there were times when we would go see her at the erie county home and she would just be crying the whole time it was was really hard to live through it's hard for my mother and my aunt and my uncle it's really hard for my great-grandmother who was still alive Uh, When she passed away, we drove my great-grandmother to the funeral. We were there first, and my parents pulled up to the front of the thing and said, Steve, get Grandma out and bring her in. She was old. She couldn't walk well. So it just so happened I walked in with my great-grandmother who made a beeline when we got in the door. My plan was to wait in the hallway for everyone to come in. She made a beeline for the door and wanted to go see my grandma right away. So I was walking next to her as we're walking down this long aisle to get from the back of the room to the front where the casket and my grandmother was. 
And as we're getting to the front, I can kind of feel my grandma Xenia, my great grandmother kind of breaking down. And she was just saying over and over again, oh, my poor Paula, my poor Paula. And it just kept getting more intense and more dramatic as she was shaking more and more and crying. And I was using all my strength in my right arm. She was on my right arm to kind of keep her from collapsing, to keep her up. I could feel the weight of her getting heavier and heavier and heavier on my arm. And she just repeatedly said, my poor Paula, my poor Paula is horrible. Horrible. And I don't know if this is weird or not, but as the years have passed, and time is a great healer, of course, and having Paula in 2016 was really great, I think, for a lot of people in my family because we had a Paula to love again on Earth. But I feel like as she's gotten older, or her birthday on earth she would have been older doesn't hurt as much for some reason because she probably would have been dead anyway i don't know if that's weird to say or not but i don't know a lot of 94 year olds a lot of not not many people there's not a lot of them and for whatever reason in my mind it doesn't hurt as much to think about my grandma passing away as it did in 1995 96 97 because she was still so young when she died and there was just like she had so much life to live still and that's kind of what made it a tragedy and now that's kind of gone because even if she had lived she never got alzheimer's she lived she'd probably be dead by now i mean she would have just died of impatience during the uh pandemic she would not have put up with that so i don't know if that makes it easier or not it does to me i don't know if that's the same for you you can email me the sportscasters at gmail.com if you have a similar instance of this. Uh, but I do miss my grandmother very much. That's the point of this whole discussion here on one last things. You know, and it's little things like I just wish she could have met Paula one time. I have this picture of her holding my cousin Paulina, who was born in 1992, I believe, February of 1992. And she's you can see she's very sick in the photo and by 1992 there wasn't a lot of her left there in terms of her what she remembered who she remembered you get a lot of blank stares from her but she held her you know my cousin has that picture she can see grandma holding her you know and i wish i had that of paula holding paula you know, so I wish that. But here's what I really wish right today, right, in 2023. I wish she could be around to see me raising my daughter as an Italian, right, because I've told this story so many times on the show. But my grandmother, at 12 years old, had to bring her four-year-old sister across the Atlantic Ocean for me to exist, you know, and she did that. She came across... It took weeks. It was horrible conditions. She had to hold her sister in her arms the whole time. They didn't have their parents. They didn't have any adults looking out for them. It was just them on a journey to America so I could exist, so my mom could exist, so Anthony could exist, so my cousins could exist, so we could have the life that we live in this beautiful country, which I love. Uh, But my heritage, my Italian heritage is very important to me. 
And I would love for her to be able to know that it's going to be important to Paula as well. Paula got her first Italian horn this year and wears it proudly to school. I love for my grandma to see. She watches Italian soccer games with me. She's learning Italian words. You know, we, we, we make a point to celebrate Italian traditions like Old Lady Bufana we did this year. And we say Ti Amo. And she eats pasta. And every time she does, we say, oh, what a good Italian. And I'd love for my grandma to know, and my grandma Zinia as well would be very proud of that. Uh, I'd love for them to know that being Italian and the values that they instilled in us because of Italianness are alive and well. Family and loyalty and passion and all the things that my grandmothers, both Italian grandmothers and my grandfather, who all came from Italy, and my cousin, my cousin Linda, my grandma's cousin Linda, and my great grandma's sister Alcia, and all the Italian relatives in my life, my uncle Paul, my mother. We have this passion that can sometimes work against us. Sometimes there's an argument or two that might get too far. Uh, but there's a loyalty and, and a passion and family and Sometimes I question other people in the family. Do they understand these values? I don't think they do. I certainly have a cousin who's lost track of that. Uh, but I'd love for my grandma to know that it's important to us, that we're trying, that my daughter knows she's Italian, right? Like my daughter's Italian on my side and Polish and some other things on my wife's side. And she knows she's Polish and they do Dingus Day. Uh, but that's about it. You know, it's not as important, I guess, to my wife and to her family, their heritage. Uh, but it's important. The other part, it's important. And, you know, and I think the part of the reason it's so important to me is because I don't have my grandma here. You know, and I, I've seen in real time, you know, when I was a kid and my brothers, they don't understand the Italian thing as much because, you know, I'm six years older than my one brother, 11 than the other. And when I was really young. The Italian family in Buffalo was huge, and we had these huge family dinners and these huge parties, and we would go to Ann Valia's and all these people that my brothers don't even know. And I seen in real time as people started to pass away, I seen the traditions fade. And I want to try to restore some of that in my daughter. That's something I'm working on. Uh, but for one last thing today, I just wanted to say rest in peace, Grandma Paula. I miss you all the time, every day, think about you. Every time I look at my Paula, I see something of you and her. You know, and thank you to Tammy who never questioned for one second that Paula's name would be Paula. The second we knew we were having a daughter, we knew her name was going to be Paula. Because that was my dream. You know, and to see it, To see what a beautiful soul my Paula is. It's an affirmation of that dream. I wanted to have a daughter and say you need to be as you need to be as brave and as strong and as beautiful and as caring as my grandmother was, and I see it in her already. I'm raising a sweet, caring, passionate, emotional Italian for all of its good and bad. I'm doing it for you, Grandma. We miss you here. Happy birthday. Tiamo.
Oh.